The opinions voiced in Investing Simplified with Bo Caldwell are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with an attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investors cannot invest directly in indexes. The performance of any index is not indicative of any investment and does not take into account the effects of inflation and the fees and expenses associated with investing. A diversified portfolio does not assure profit or prevent losses in a declining market. Roth IRA conversion is a taxable event. Guests on Investing Simplified are not affiliated with Price Financial Group Wealth Management Incorporated. Investment services offered through Price Financial Group Wealth Management Incorporated, an SEC registered investment advisor. Welcome into Investing Simplified. However, you're joining me today. Thanks for making me a part of your day. I'm Bo Caldwell, CFP. President and CEO here at Price Financial Group Wealth Management here in Portland. I want to remind you, if you miss parts of today's show, you can go ahead and download the show by visiting Odyssey or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We've posted them up there. They're hosted there, as well as you can visit our website at www.pricefg.com as we do a replay of the show that we broadcast out here live. We replay that on our website and on podcasts, Apple Podcasts and such. So if you missed parts of the show, go ahead and go there. I wanted to start today talking a little bit about the markets because, you know, we've gotten into a new year and if you've been listening to us for a while, I apologize about, you know, there's been some weather issues here in Portland. There were some issues with the holidays and we had a mix up with our radio station and where we had a replay that played a couple of weeks ago that wasn't supposed to be a replay of a show. So this is a brand new show today. So if you're tuning in, it is, I am coming at you here in January, talking to you in the new year. And as we're a few weeks into the new year, what ends up happening right now is a lot of folks are getting their year-end statements. So their brokerage statements for their IRAs or their Roths or their brokerage accounts where they invest the dollars. And whether that's at Fidelity or Schwab or or eMoney or Wells Fargo or wherever you have your money invested. And if you're working with an advisor, you may also get a year-end statement from them, a quarterly statement, a report, performance report on on what is happening in the markets and what's happening in your accounts. And what a lot of people focus on is the change. You know, it depends on the company that you're working with, but on your statement, you'll see a beginning value, an ending value, and then a change in market value. Often included in there are dividends and interest that are earned and then any fees paid or market losses if you had losses, right? So you'll see all those on the statement and then you see the net net return, which is what your account did over the past year. And as we you know go into January, a lot of times people are not only seeing the monthly statement, but they're seeing the year end statement. And if you had money allocated to the markets, you probably did pretty well last year. You know, the stock market, the S&P 500, which is a broad measure of the market and what most people use to measure the stock market returns. But the S&P 500 returned just about 24% in the year 2023. So if you bought the SPY, you know, the the ETF that tracks the S&P 500, or if you bought one of Vanguard's index funds or a different index fund, then within a couple basis points or, you know, 0.05% difference, you should be right about 24% return for the year 2023. Now, alternatively, if you had bonds, if you owned bonds last year, bonds, the U.S. aggregate bond index, which is a measurement of the overall 
bond market that returned a little over 5% last year. So now, you know, pretty good considering that, you know, you've got 5% potentially in the Barclays aggregate bonds or 24% in stocks. And if you had a mixture of those, then obviously you got a blended result. And a lot of people, you know, measure that 60-40 portfolio. They've heard that be the golden portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. There's no real answer. But when we look at different portfolio sizes, that's what a lot of people will compare to because Vanguard, you know, Jack Bogle years ago, and even Warren Buffett's talked about that a lot, that buying index funds and holding for the long term will you know, work out better in the long run than utilizing an actively managed portfolio. And sometimes, in some time frames, it does. Obviously, over the last year, even if your active manager, your portfolio manager that you work with, if you have one, bought 60% stocks and 40% bonds, they're going to be trailing the market based on the fee that they charge. That makes sense? So there would have been at least that much drag on the overall market, the fee that they're charging. Now we add in, maybe they didn't get exactly the S&P 500, maybe they didn't get exactly the Barclays Ag. So, you know, it's a hard comparison to make. But if you were invested in stocks and or bonds last year, you should have made at least some money. Now, I think a reasonable return for me would be anywhere from 8 to 16%, anywhere in between there because bonds were at 5, again, and stocks were at 24 But if you back up a little more, because it sounds great, hey, 2023 was great, but if you're forgetting about 2022, when both stocks and bonds were down double digits in 2022, so we back it up and say, hey, last year was great, but if you were invested the year before, and if we did January of 2022, if you bought in the first market day on market open in January of 2022, and then sold out the end of December of 23, so a true measurement of the last two years, the S&P 500 was ostensibly flat. It was down ever so slightly, just a little less than 1%, maybe like a tenth or two tenths of a percent. So basically flat, especially if you take dividends into account. And the Barclays Aggregate Index, if you were invested in bonds, over that two-year period is still down 12%. Now again, that doesn't include dividends, right? We're just talking about total price return. But if you're comparing the price return in your portfolio to what the markets have done, over the last two years, a 60-40 blend portfolio like I described, so 60% equities, 40% bonds, would be down 4.8%. And that's before any fees that you're paying, again, if you had an actively managed portfolio. And then if you're 50-50, so half bonds, half stocks, so maybe a little more conservative, or at least thinking you're more conservative, then you'd be down 6% over the last two years. So even with the run-up in the market over the last year, you'd still net-net over the last two years be down. And if you analyze that further and back out to twenty before 2020, if you analyze back out further, you can see over time, you do make money in the long run by being invested in stocks and bonds, right? Being invested in the market, over time, historically, you have made money. But if you take just one time period and then compare it against, you know, a not comparable time period, then you're going to be setting yourself up for failure. And the other key thing that would happen is what happened to a lot of people at the end of 2022, they went 100% cash because they said, hey, I can't take it anymore. The market is going down and it feels like it's still going down and we were bearish. You heard me talking on the radio that we had a bearish outlook on the overall markets, but to us that doesn't mean that you go 100% cash because if you did and you said, hey, that's great because money markets and fixed interest rates shot up, right? We saw that over the last year and right now you could get anywhere from four and a half to five and a half percent 
in a money market fund that's invested in U.S. treasuries potentially. That's what we have as of this week. It's a little over 4.5% on a fully liquid product. That's great. But if you were down double digits in 2022 and then win 100% cash, now you haven't made any of that back and you missed out on the whole run-up to get back to, again, relatively break-even. So when you're investing in stocks and comparing yourself to the S&P 500, the roller coaster could be big. We had a 24% run up last year and you're still just barely at break even from where you were if you started in 2022. So you have to be willing to ride that roller coaster or alternatively, the idea is you build out an all weather portfolio by working with a financial team. And I hear, you know, there's a lot of radio hosts that will talk about this. There's certain groups you get a lot of noise about, hey, why would you work with a financial advisor? Are they really going to beat the market? Maybe, maybe they won't. But the key is if that financial advisor can keep you invested, keep you shooting towards your goals, because if you see most average investors, the U.S. News and World Reports did a report a few years ago. They studied the average return of the S&P 500 over time, depending on when you start and when you finish, is anywhere from 75 to 12% per year. Now, it depends on when you start and when you finish again, because you can use statistics to make it say anything you want. But over that time period, the S&P 500 or stocks have had a pretty healthy return. And if you get 7% a year, that means your money doubles every 10 years, give or take. So if you were getting 7% a year, so if you're averaging that, but then they did an analysis and showed that the average investor, so you and me, the average person investing in their 401k or in their IRA over that same time period returned just 3%. And what's the difference there? The difference is remaining invested, having a plan, having an investment plan that stays invested because if you're comparing yourself to the S&P 500, you have to buy it, you have to hold it, and you have to hold on for the ride. And if that works for you and works for your psyche, for your psychology, and for your overall plan, then great. But if you needed a little help, a lot of investors will see outsized returns or will see better returns over time potentially if they work with an advisor because that advisor helps them to stay invested. Now, they may not have better returns over time. Right, A lot of advisors will tell you that, hey, they can time the market and they can outperform on the upside and on the downside. And generally speaking, they're not going to be able to do that over time. You can pull up another statistic, which is what an argument is made by those folks who say just buy the index, is that 90% of mutual funds, and I don't know if 90% is the accurate number, but that's the number that gets thrown around. But you know, some majority of mutual fund managers do not outperform their index because again, they're taking different stocks. They're taking different stocks that may do better or may do worse than the overall index. But that's only one piece of the analysis. The other piece of the analysis is, were you invested in the right mutual funds or the right ETFs or the right indexes based on your risk tolerance and what your goals are? Because it completely makes a difference because if you are looking at the S&P 500 and saying, hey, I need that 7 to 12% you know, compounded return depending on when I got in and when I get out, but I need something like that, to reach my goals, but are you able to hold on through 20 something percent down in 2022 and then 20 something percent up in 2023? And then you have a net zero return over that two year period. And are you still willing to stick with that strategy? Because if you've given yourself unrealistic expectations, then you're not going to be able to hold on. The other half of it is do you even need to ride that roller coaster? Because depending on how well you've done from a saving standpoint, from a planning standpoint, and from an allocation standpoint, both tax allocation and diversification and investment allocation and diversification, there's a possibility that you don't need to take that much risk. And maybe you can ride out 
with that you know fluctuating market and instead of going down double digits you're down single digits and when it's up double digits you're only up single digits too because you get to the same place so if you have an account that when the markets are down over 20% and you're down 10 you feel really good but then when the markets are up over 20% and you're only up 10 or 11 or 12 something like that a similar outlay do you feel just as good and a lot of people don't. A lot of people have FOMO. They have that fear of missing out and they think they need to catch all the upside and none of the downside, which just isn't possible. So if you have enough of the upside and enough off the downside in order to feel comfortable with your plan, then you should be able to hold on and you will have a better chance of reaching those long-term goals. Because the adage rings true. It's not timing the market, it's time in the market. And even if you talk to those folks who say they're really good at timing trades and they're really good at trading the markets, their long-term money goes into a mutual fund or goes into an ETF with an advisor. Their short-term money, sure, they're trying to make money short-term and you can do better by timing potentially in the short-term, but in the long-term, it has always held true, historically speaking, that if you have a plan, you set out that plan, you have an allocation and you stick to that allocation. And that's based on math, on probabilities, and on analyzing your psychology and how comfortable you are with risk. Because there's always a trade-off. And if you take more risk, it could have more return, but it also could have more downside, more losses when the market does go down. Inevitably, it's going to go down. And I don't know when that is. We, you know, we're still cautiously optimistic about the markets as we go into an election year. We think that there's going to be a good amount of volatility. The key is, can you hold on through the volatility because you have that all-weather portfolio and you're prepared? Because the key is knowing where you're going to step, knowing where you're trying to go, making sure that you can stick with that plan. And if you haven't had that plan or you haven't had that conversation with your advisor, give us a call, 503-253-3000. Set up time for a complimentary consultation with one of our fiduciary advisors to make sure that you're on the right path, that you're in an amount of risk that you're comfortable with that you can hold on to because it's helping you to get closer to those long-term goals. So again, give us a call, 503-253-3000, or visit www.pricefg.com. We're gonna take a quick break and be back with more Investing Simplified. Leaving an employer can be stressful and overwhelming, but once the dust settles and you're at a new job or perhaps retired, it is important to consider your options for that retirement plan left behind. If this situation applies and you would like to hear more about options available for 401k, 403b, or other retirement account rollovers, please give our office a call at 503-253-3000 to schedule a complimentary consultation with someone on the team to go over your specific and individual situation. We will take the time to get to know you, your goals, and let you know what the best course of action is for you and your family. Welcome back to Investing Simplified. However you're joining us today, thank you for making us a part of your day. As always, you can catch replays of our show on podcasts that would be both Apple as well as Android and on our website, www.pricefg.com. If you've got a question that you'd like answered on our show, feel free to email that question to info at pricefg.com or you can call us at 503 253 3,000. And can, actually, I, can I uh, throw one in there? We can actually text now? I was about to say that. Oh, I, ruined, I stole your thunder. I'm yeah, sorry. That's okay. So you can actually text us if you have uh, something you'd like us to talk about. 
3000. If you call us or text us, we'll follow up to make sure we got the question right. And then we'll try to answer it to the best of our abilities on this show. We used to have the show live with people calling in. Don't have that ability right at the moment, but this is the second best option. And, you know, if there's a question out there, there's a good chance somebody else has a similar question. Yeah. Right. Because if you went back uh, in school, right, back in the day, high school or elementary school or college, there's always somebody that finally raised their hand and asked the teacher a question. And then like three other people are like, oh, man, OK, glad he asked that or she asked that. Right. We don't put your name out there. We just, you know, take the question and, and, and do our best to answer it. Absolutely. But it helps create, you know, good quality content for our listeners. So and then all, always available are our complimentary consultations. So the same number call 503 253-3000. I wanted to talk about Social Security in an article I read recently on CNBC. And it was a proposal by a couple of senators to change the way Social Security benefit are projected or portrayed. So we used to get statements in the mail mm-hmm. for Social Security. Those have uh, gone away with some sort of a paper reduction act, I believe, you know, several years ago. Mm-hmm. So first of all, if you don't know about that and you've been thinking like where's my social security statement uh to the best way to access your social security or i should say the only way to access it now is through ssa.gov so you have to go on there create an account i tell people regardless of how old you are i'd go ahead and set it up because a if you set it up less chances of somebody else being able to set it up (laughs) number two regardless of your age if you're working or b if we're, we're you know right yeah, if you're still working or if you've, you just want to double check your wages, that's the other thing that happens over there. You could check, okay, what did my employer uh, report as my wages prior year? It's good to check. I yeah, don't think there's a lot of errors. Obviously, your benefit is Absolutely. dependent on your reported income. Yeah. So if, for example, you made 60000 but the paperwork on there says 40000 that would be something you'd want to fix. I'm not sure how to go about that, but I'm guessing you contact your employer and then through there, they update Social Security. But SSA.gov. So... Once you go on there, you can pull the letter. It's called an estimate letter from Social Security. Mm -hmm. And what they're talking about on there is to change the verbiage. And it's interesting because they're talking about basically encouraging people to wait longer to file Social Security. Yeah, this is straight from the Social Security Administration. They said the number one mistake people make is to take Social Security early. So this is some proposed changes to deal with that. So, of course... Age 62 is the earliest that you can take the benefit. Then you have your full retirement age, which falls somewhere between age 66 and 67. And then if you wait past full retirement age, you can go all the way out to age 70 and get a higher benefit. Yeah. So one of the things that they're proposing is going back to actual paper statements, which is interesting. They're saying that every five years, once you turn 25, you'd get a statement. Okay. So keeping people in the know, I mean, I like that idea. A lot of the time, you know, I'll meet with people and and I ask, hey, what's up with Social Security? What's your benefit? Oh, I don't know. We can estimate it based off income, right? There's tools we have to do that. So Mm -hmm. if you don't have it handy, we we, we have some solutions. They're not going to be as accurate as your actual statement, of course. These are just estimations. So if you all of a sudden got something in the mail, A, it could be a wake-up call because you're like, oh, man, this isn't there very much. You know, I just talked to somebody actually recently and her social security benefit was going to be somewhere around $22,000 a year and uh, at 65 and she's about 50 now and unfortunately she was not pleased 
Well, that, that's all? And I'm like, well, yeah, that's that's what it looks like at the moment. Now it's $22,000 in today's dollars. So obviously that gets inflated. But you know, how far does $22,000 take you nowadays? And B, maybe you have to save an additional amount of money in a separate bucket that's not devoted to social security to supplement that, right? Because right. you know, nowadays, how much do you need to live? Uh, I mean, I would think in today's dollars and say Portland to be somewhat comfortable not talking, you know, lavish lifestyle, probably around $5,000 net of taxes, maybe $4,000 net of taxes. It's so relative. It depends on a lot of situations, right? A lot of factors. So the county you live in, the property, your, you know, uh, maybe health expenses. If you retire Mm -hmm. before the age of 65, there's a lot of different factors. And always remember social security was designed to only replace 40% of your income. And we really want to focus on your financial plan to make sure, hey, is it really 40% that Social Security is satisfying for your retirement income? Or do we need to shoot for even more growth out of the rest of your portfolio to supplement that uh, Social Security income? Yeah. And if we do the math on the example I just gave, right, it's about 37%. So 22000 off of about a $60,000 income, mm-hmm. that's roughly 36, 37%. So it's right in the ballpark. We just can't count on it being the only thing, right? And, you know, I've heard, and I can't remember who said it, but it's not social security, it's social insecurity because it makes <laughs> you insecure about how well your retirement's going. Um, I but, think for two reasons, because, yeah. you know, obviously there are a lot of folks out there that are, are just, you know, really stuck on the idea that social security is going to run out of, run out of money. And that's a valid point to some degree. Years ago, I had a gentleman from the Social Security Administration do a seminar, and he said we were fully funded through about 2033, perhaps 2034, and then after that, it's about 75 to 80% funded at that point going forward. So if there are no fixes to Social Security, then we could potentially see a benefit reduction in the year 2033, potentially 2034. Right. So I mean, it, it's not a done deal yet. That's part of the argument. I guess a longer... Congress waits to solve the problem, the more of an adjustment it'll have to be. And that's one of two things, either cut benefits or raise taxes. Exactly. Well, and the other thing that this article talks about is basically, as I said earlier, encouraging people to wait and take social security later. Now, could that be because social security is running out of money? Well, maybe, (laughs) probably not their actual intent there trying to make people work longer and by working longer you're putting more money you know away into the social security bucket but then because of the benefit being higher you're less likely to have to you know rely on government support and help in addition to if that's the only source of income you have so right and in the article it it did say in their example they gave you know the uh, this investor that works and takes full retirement age benefit, if they had waited until age 70, it could be potentially an, a difference of $110,000 over their lifetime yeah. if they had waited. Exactly. It was 111000 per household. So 62 remains the most frequent claiming age for almost 35% of men and 40% of women is the statistic. And so if you do the math, an average lifetime loss of $111,000 per household is the number. Yeah. Now, and then also yeah. keep in mind, that you also have to look at when you're married and the first person passes away, the second person is left with the higher benefit of the two. So you have to be focused on if it's the higher 
earner that's thinking about taking early retirement and they either are slightly older, they had the higher income, whatever the case may be, if the person that's younger that's going to outlive them potentially on paper is stuck with a lower benefit because they took it early, that can be a, a meaningful detriment to their retirement. Absolutely. And as you said earlier, you know, a lot of this has to, well, all of this has to be tied back with the plan of some sort, right? Yeah, whether you like it or not, whether you have an official plan or not, there's going to be a plan put together for you for retirement. It may be one that you don't want to follow or mm -hmm. one that, you know, you didn't really spend a lot of effort on, but there will be a plan or some sort of an execution in your retirement, right? So when you were talking about the consideration for the spouse, that's very mm -hmm. important. It comes up in planning all the time. A lot of the time when one of the spouses is significantly older or younger, and then of course we've got the females typically living longer and males living less time. So you have to take all that into the mix when you're trying to come up with the right formula. Now, is there a magical solution for everyone? No, each case is different. Each situation is different. We review them side by side. And even with a lot of diligence and a lot of research, you may still be off. You're not gonna hit a bullseye with social security every single time. You just do your best in uh, coming up with the path that will most benefit your family, right? At the end of the day. And I would add one more variable to when to take social security. I. I don't really see many cases where I would think about recommending taking it before full retirement age, but you know, at full retirement age and later, if somebody says, Hey, I'm absolutely waiting till age 70. What if at age 68, we had a financial crisis and the markets from top to bottom are down 53% and your goal was at age 68, I'm just going to be living on my retirement, um, my, my portfolio for two years until social security kicks in and you have to sell stuff at 50% off, uh, the, you know, prior years right. market values. Yeah. That might be an instance because of that market volatility to the downside where you consider turning on social security earlier. So you don't have to drain the portfolio when it's been hit. It's so a very hard. good example of a, of a, something that's a case by case situation. It, right? it really, really is. Yeah. You know, it, you want to go in it with eyes open and using common sense is definitely a Absolutely. key. Absolutely. Another piece that comes up a lot is working in retirement. So it's important to note that 62 is the earliest you could file. Mm -hmm. Then somewhere between 66 and 67 is your full retirement age. And then you've got 70, the maximum amount of time you can wait. Well, right. if you're pre full retirement age, you can only make a certain amount of money. It's a little bit over $20,000 for 2023. And mm -hmm. maybe, you know, it'll be inflated year over year. Sure. But if you make more than that, then your benefit of social security gets reduced a dollar for every $2 you make above that $22,000 plus number. Mm -hmm. The year your full retirement age, that goes to a dollar reduction for every $3 you make, which is a little bit of a lesson. Uh, penalty. And then after that, you can make as much as you want. So yeah. once you've hit full retirement age. Yeah. The year after you could make as much money as your soul desires without having any issues. So if you're planning on working after quote unquote retiring, perhaps the working wages may be enough to, you know, not have to dip into social security that then will allow that benefit to grow and have a better strategy around it. So in the article, the other thing I wanted to bring up because it's important how they're playing with words a little bit. I'm calling it playing because they're saying the same thing, but just using different words. So 62 is, you know, early eligibility age, and they want to change that to minimum benefit age. You know, if I said, hey, this is your early eligibility age or minimum benefit age, does that really 
make a difference? I mean, I think in my maybe. mind, I think yeah. so. Like early eligibility. Oh, I got in early because I'm 62. Right. Boom. You just locked in. So a pay like cut. call it a bonus eligibility or something. It's like, Hey, you're ready. Um, so, you know, minimum benefit age is what's going to be called potentially if this passes. Then 66 to 67 is currently called full retirement age or FRA. A lot of the time that's the acronym people use and they would want to change that to standard benefit age. Okay. Just basically saying standard. This is where, you know, you want to be standard. You want to be with the crowd. That's kind of where people start. And then the 70 would be called maximum benefit age. And it doesn't really say what currently it's called, but I think it's pretty much called the same thing at the moment because at 70, you can't, you know, wait any longer. You take, take social security. Yeah. There is no benefit to waiting after age 70. It nope. doesn't go up anymore. It well, I, I mean, not because of the built-in right. increases. It could go up because of inflation, but you would get that if yeah. you were taking the benefit anyway. Yeah. I would hope that their social security office has some sort of a letter that goes out to 70 year olds saying, Hey, you should file. In case hey, BT dubs. Yeah. You, you, you turn 70 and we, we don't have any apps for turning on social security. Might right. want to fix that. And you just automatically set it up. So that way it goes out. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be interesting. So if you're sitting there thinking, Oh man, I don't know if my social security will be enough or you haven't looked at your social security statement with anyone, or if you'd like a plan, you'd like a strategy to get to retirement and then through retirement, give us a call for a complimentary consultation. We're at 503-253-3000. It only takes an hour, two hours of your time, and the complimentary consultation is indeed complimentary. So appreciate everybody listening. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Investing Simplified. Leaving an employer can be stressful and overwhelming, but once the dust settles and you're at a new job or perhaps retired, it is important to consider your options for that retirement plan left behind. If this situation applies and you would like to hear more about options available for 401k, 403b, or other retirement account rollovers, please give our office a call at 503-253-3000 to schedule a complimentary consultation with someone on the team to go over your specific and individual situation. We will take the time to get to know you, your goals, and let you know what the best course of action is for you and your family. Welcome back to Investing Simplified. Thank you for joining us. If you're just now joining us, thank you for making us a part of your day. We've come to the part of the show that we like to call Estate Planning Made Simple. And I have with me the owner and founder of eLegacy Law, one of our great partners here at Price Financial Group, Ryan Crandall. Welcome in, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you know, as you can probably see, he we are in this digital world of Zoom. And so Ryan and I are going to talk a little bit today about some estate planning questions that we've come across, some things we find interesting. If you have a question for Ryan that you'd like him to answer, maybe on a future show or at least give you his perspective, make sure to send that question to askbo, A-S-K-B-O at pricefg.com because we want to make sure that when we're talking estate planning and simplifying your estate planning, we're talking about things that matter to you in your life. So Ryan, we were talking a little bit in the break about when you have, you know, an estate plan, the whole purpose of getting the estate plan together is so that way your assets and your, you know, the things that you have go the way that you want them to go at your death rather than the way that the state or the government wants them to go. But sometimes people come, you know, we come across situations where maybe the uh, grantor, as we call them, right, the uh, decedent doesn't have a great relationship with their family. Maybe there's not a whole lot they want to leave to 
you know, kids or to, uh, to maybe they don't have a spouse or anything like that. They're estranged. What kind of situations do you come across in your practice when, you know, in those situations? Yeah. You know, unfortunately that's something that we run into from time to time where there's, you know, not great familial relationships. And so some of the questions we get asked are, how do I keep my plan private? You know, what are my options for distributing assets and, you know, how do we navigate those, you know, kind of sticky situations? And so, you know, I usually start by explaining that, you know, in terms of who you name as beneficiaries of your estate, uh, that's entirely up to you. So sometimes clients have a, an impression that they're required to leave assets to their children or, or grandchildren or heirs. Uh, you're not. Uh, you have complete control over who you decide to distribute your estate to. So that's kind of a starting point with with a lot of clients is so, you know, if you want to give it all to charity, uh, that's entirely up to you. And, you know, a a follow up to that, a a lot of clients wonder, okay, well, you know, things aren't great. Maybe at the time, you know, I'm going through a rough patch with my son and and things are not great. And and I want to write him out of the will, um, but maybe leave open the possibility that I'd add him back in the future. But I I don't want him to know what I'm doing. You know, and if it if I do pass away, I, I don't necessarily want him, you know, to know all the details of my estate and who I decided to actually give my estate to. And so, how much is he entitled to to know? And you know, what kind of disclosures are are required? And so, you know, in that scenario, you know, I explain to the client that your son isn't entitled to know what's currently in your documents. You know, when we draft an estate plan, we always explain that these are these documents typically are revocable and they can be amended and, and updated. So what you decide to put in your plan today uh, could look different in the future. And we're not required to share any of that information with anyone while you're alive. Where that information does potentially get shared is at your passing. And that's where there can be a difference between, you know, the, the type of vehicle that we use for the, the plan, whether we're doing a, a will-based plan or, or whether we're building the plan on a, a trust, uh, because generally with, with wills, those documents, the, the entire will, the, the original will, if it's still available, actually gets filed with the court and it becomes public record, which oh. means that anyone can go in and they can get a, a, a copy of that will and um, and see who was written out of the will, who was who was written into it. And so that's where there's a potential benefit to using a trust, uh, where we have a greater degree of protection, where trusts are generally carried out informally out, outside of the uh, the oversight of, of a court or a public proceeding. So, that's, so an, uh, that's an important piece, right? So you just mentioned that the will is completely public at your passing, right? Because you have to file it with the court as part of that probate process. So if you wanted to keep a little bit away from, say, your estranged son or maybe your sister who thinks that she has rights to, you know, to your money or, you know, whatever the case may be, they will be able to see everything that went down in the probate process because it's in a will. But if you use a trust or utilize a trust vehicle, they you're saying they don't get to necessarily see all that stuff or will they still get to see some? Not necessarily. So, you know, with the trust, when it comes time to administer that trust, you know, there are disclosures that get made to the beneficiaries of the trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and so typically we'll provide if, you know, those beneficiaries, let's say we have five individuals and they're the beneficiaries of the trust, they will receive copies of the portions of the trust that relate to them and their interest. 
um, and not necessarily anything else. So they might know that they're a beneficiary of you know 10% of the estate, but they don't necessarily know who the other beneficiaries are. And, and so that's that's one way to keep some of that information private. And you know a, a, another thing, and back to the to the wills and, and a probate proceeding um, is when a probate gets initiated, there are notices that get sent out, required notices that are sent to interested parties. And generally those interested parties are, you know, anyone that's named as a beneficiary of the estate, uh, but it could also be just family members and children who, who might not necessarily uh, be a beneficiary of the estate, but we're still required to send them notice, um, which can sometimes look and feel like an invitation to to come in and, and contest the validity of the will and, and involve themselves in, in this legal probate proceeding. And with a trust, we, we don't have to do that. We don't have to send these invitations for a lawsuit to you know, other family members that aren't actually beneficiaries of the estate. And so those those are set by the state or how does that, is that, you know, generally yeah, speaking? That, it's, that's determined by, by state statute who's okay. required to receive notice of a probate proceeding. Okay. And so potentially, like if you, you know, hypothetically said, hey, I wanted in that situation you described said, hey, I want to make sure that my son is only this portion and then maybe I'm affecting it later, but I don't want him to know what the whole the whole piece is. If he's, you know, state of Oregon, for example, he'd probably get a notice that it's going through probate and he'd be able to see all of it. Yep. So if it's important to be, you know, uh, discreet, if you want to make sure that it's pri- a little more privacy, you don't have as much sort of open kimono for lack of a better phrase, right? Mm-hmm. On your estate planning, then a trust can really make a lot of sense. It can. Yeah. You know, trusts as a starting point are, are going to be handled uh, and carried out privately and, and informally. Now a trust could always be wrapped, you know, pulled into a lawsuit. Okay. Um, you know, if, if it, that disgruntled uh, strange family member comes in and, and files a lawsuit, yeah, they, they can pull the trust into it, but there's still going to be some some protections and, and discovery, they might not, you know, in, in ways to, to maybe retain, you know, some of the, the information that doesn't directly pertain to them. There's a much higher cost of entry, right? Uh, sure. To, they've got to be uh, much more proactive in filing a lawsuit to, against the trust and, and the trustee than in a probate where we're kind of giving them that invitation to insert themselves into the proceedings. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cause it's, maybe it's going to be a barrier to entry for them to file said lawsuit because they actually have to get legal representation. They can't just come down to the courthouse and say, Hey, I want to, I want to see it. I'm, you know, that's my mom. That's my mom's estate. I want to see it. So that makes right. a lot of sense. And you know, it could be situations, not necessarily we've described estrangement where you're utilizing that and trying to keep it private, but could it be, you know, situations where maybe it's not estrangement, but maybe it's just, hey, I don't, you know, maybe a spendthrift child or, you know, someone who has drug or alcohol problems or something like that. So maybe it's not estrangement. You're just wanting to make sure right. to keep it separate. And I, I would imagine that trust is also in a situation where if someone passes away with a significant estate and wants to dole out things over time, then that would have to be a, the same, a similar deal, right? You can't necessarily do that with a simple will. Yeah, certainly not a simple will. Um, I mean, you can have a will that creates trusts at death, but you know, usually if, if we're going that route, we would just create the trust during your lifetime. You know, using an irrevo- or a revocable living trust. So 
you know, to, to your point, yes, if, you know, let's say we've got multiple siblings and one of them is a spendthrift, we can, we, we can draft in special provisions for that, that child that provides some more structure and, and oversight. And again, that could potentially save them and the family some embarrassment if, you know, if we're able to do that in a trust versus in, in a will where, you know, again, that information would, would all be public. Sure. And that, like you said, I, I, I like the point you just made about it being an embarrassment for the family potentially, because it's not necessarily that you want to keep things hidden, but maybe you don't want to just air the dirty laundry, right? Even yeah, the laundry there's, there's, yeah, let's avoid airing any dirty laundry as much as, as we possibly can. So, yeah, that makes complete sense to me. So in terms of how people are looking at it, because we've often talked, you know, when we talk about Hey, we're, whether we need a will or a trust, a lot of times folks ask if there's a dollar sign, which sometimes there could be a dollar sign that you're looking at those things, right? Because of the probate cost. But really, it seems like it comes down to privacy and, you know, and malleability, right? So there's a lot easier moves. You said it's a little informally as opposed to a will. Then correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is with a will, somebody's got to go to probate, you got to get the court order to move the stuff around as opposed to a trust. That, that, you know, to, I don't want to use the wrong term, but that springing into, I've passed away, I have everything listed in trust, my son is my successor trustee, he doesn't have to go to the court to get an order to go get my bank account as long as my bank account is in the name of the trust. Exactly. That's the beauty of it. We're, we're setting all, all of that up, the structure ahead of time, and the legal mechanism for the people who we want to step into our shoes to do that. Um, you know, that's that's why probate's required is... is you know, we, we have a person named as the executor of the estate, but they actually don't have the authority until the, they go through that process and the judge gives it to them. Um, with the trust, we don't have to do that. We're able to give them the authority, you know, during our lifetimes, it doesn't require a judge to sign off on any of that. And so um, that, it cuts that out of the process entirely. I like it. That makes a lot of sense. So that you're able to just a little more control, which I know most folks that I talk to when they're talking about the estate planning piece is wanting to make sure that they are in control rather than the court or, or the state. And one thing I, you know, I mentioned in there, and I know you and I've talked about it before, but the important thing is if you have a trust, make sure everything's named in the trust, in the name of the trust, right? Because it sort of defeats the purpose. If you have accounts that are not in the name of the trust, if you've set up a trust. Exactly. And you know, there are a lot of people out there, unfortunately that have trusts, but assets outside of the name of the trust. And you know, in that case, um, what would happen is really that the trust is not going to be much better than a will because they will end up having to go to court and file a will, what we call a pour over will, to take any assets that were left outside of the trust and pour them into the trust. Um, and so that's a really important part of the process that you, that you brought up. And, and I'm glad you mentioned it because even a lot of attorneys and law firms will create the trust, you know, the trust documents, but not go through that process of ensuring that the assets are titled correctly. You know, for us at eLegacy, that's step five in our five-step process is, is we go through every single asset, all the bank accounts, real properties, um, vehicles, and make sure everything's titled in the name of the trust and so that the trust is actually going to work as intended and, and we're not going to end up in probate anyway. Not going to have to chase the things around. Well, that's a that's a great segue. So, Ryan, before we end end the segment here, when when people want to have those questions answered, maybe they just don't even know if their stuff's properly titled. How do they get a hold of you and your firm? Yeah, they uh, can reach us at elegacylaw.com. Right there on our homepage, you can schedule a time to meet with one of our consultants. You know, it only takes a minute or two to schedule that, and usually we can be meeting with you the next business day and and getting that process started. 
so elegacylaw.com, or you can reach us if you prefer phone at 888-308-PLAN, and we can get you started that way too. Perfect. And if you have questions or you miss that, you can always call our office and we will connect you with Ryan and his team. Ryan, thank you so much for being here. This, you know, for this segment is so important to us to have your estate planning made simple part of the show. We're so happy to do it. So we'll look to talk uh, next week, but I I appreciate you joining us. We'll be back with more Investing Simplified. I'll bet you've heard me talk about e-legacy law and how Tina and I wanted to protect our family by creating an airtight estate plan. Hey, it's Lars, but e-legacy law isn't just for our circumstances. They have many ways to help you protect your assets, including community property agreements and pre- and post-nuptial agreements. Whether you're currently married, going through a divorce, or newly engaged or newly married, make sure your estate plan works for you. E-legacy law is a full-service estate planning law firm that's completely virtual. We worked with an experienced estate planning attorney to get our custom plan done without ever having to set foot out of our house and you can do it too the process couldn't be easier they offer affordable flat fee rate pricing on all estate plans so no surprises go to e-legacy lars to get the lars larson special rate to save 250 dollars using promo code save only available to my listeners that's e-legacy lars to save 250 dollars today that's elegacylars.com elegacylars.com Leaving an employer can be stressful and overwhelming, but once the dust settles and you're at a new job or perhaps retired, it is important to consider your options for that retirement plan left behind. If this situation applies and you would like to hear more about options available for 401k, 403b, or other retirement account rollovers, please give our office a call at 503-253-3000 to schedule a complimentary consultation with someone on the team to go over your specific and individual situation. We will take the time to get to know you, your goals, and let you know what the best course of action is for you and your family. Welcome back to Investing Simplified. If you're just now joining me and you missed parts of today's show, like the segment with Ryan from eLegacy or Matt and Matt talking Social Security, make sure you log in to www.pricefg.com. When I say log in, I mean go to www.pricefg.com where you can download the latest episodes of our show. We usually get those uploaded within about a week of the original airing of the show. And if you have a question that's been keeping you up, please feel free to send that to askbo at pricefg.com because we want to make sure that we're answering those questions. And I did get a question coming from some folks that, you know, about, hey, I'm retiring in the next 12 months, right? So we talk about, you know, retirement red zone. We talk about that a lot. We talk about when you're within five to 10 years of retirement, some things to do. But what if retirement is this year? What if you're thinking, hey, I'm going to pull the trigger here in 2024, and I've got a list of about seven things that usually we tell people, these are the seven things, and this is not the, you know, categorically be all and all list, but these are seven things that you can do to help you feel more comfortable getting ready to retire here in 2024. So first, you know, number one thing that we do, and number one is review your retirement financial plan, because if you don't have a plan, if you're just going to wing it in retirement, I don't think that's going to work long-term. And most of all, you won't be comfortable with where you're at and how you can get there. The first thing you really want to do before you know pulling that trigger on retirement is make sure you have a retirement plan that is tailored to retirement, not just a savings plan and not just a projection, but hey, where are your goals for living expenses, for medical expenses, for social security income, when we're going to take it? Ideally, 
right? You want to make sure that debt is paid off. In an ideal world, we go into retirement with, you know, no, especially no high interest debt, but no debt if possible, which would be great because you don't have to necessarily worry about planning for that debt piece. And really, you want to look at your situation with a specialist. I think working with a fiduciary advisor to build out that plan really helps because you're going to probably be retired for 20 or 30 years, maybe more years, and have to make sure that you combat inflation, right? Which is number two. And that's been big on people's minds over the last few years as we've seen the prices of goods and services go up astronomically, despite the fact that the inflation numbers have come back in much lower. That just means it's getting a more expensive slower. doesn't mean stuff's not getting more expensive, right? You want to make sure that you're factoring in that because Social Security does raise payouts, generally speaking, in response to rising prices. But the thing about it is so does Medicare. And if you haven't run that Medicare and Social Security analysis to see what they might go up with inflation, you want to make sure that you're taking a look at that, right? You want to make sure your financial plan isn't too conservative, but does have some portion of it right? That's going to access the cost of living increases. And you can project it at two and a half, at 3%, at 5%, whatever you feel comfortable working with your advisor on what an inflationary number would be, because a dollar spent today is not going to get you as far as a dollar spent 20 years from now. Just think about 20 years ago, 2004. How far did a dollar go? What were prices on housing, on goods and services, on a gallon of milk? Sure, a gallon of gas has fluctuated up and down between those, right? It's not as cheap as it was in 2004. It's not as expensive as it was a couple years ago. But everything goes up over time. Stuff costs more. I use the the silly analogy, but I've used it before, right? And say, hey, my grandfather paid more for his last car than he did for his first house. And that adage holds true, especially over the last couple of years, correct? So make sure that you are planning for inflation inside that financial plan. And then you also want to make sure that you're protecting some assets from the market, any assets that you're going to use in the next year. So our rule of thumb, we usually say, is if you're going to use the money or have a plan to use the money within the next six to 12 months, they should not be exposed to market factors. Right now, on money market funds, you can get 4.5% or more on a liquid guaranteed rate of return on in terms of utilizing U.S. treasuries or maybe a short-term CD with FDIC insurance. So for example, if your social security, when you turn it on, it's going to get you, you know, $30,000 a year in income, but you need $35,000 a year to meet your goals. I would consider setting that $5,000 aside in a high yield savings in a money market or a short-term CD. So that maybe earns interest, but tell you need it later in the year, but don't let the volatility of the market take you out. So number four, healthcare planning. And this is a huge piece because some people may not know, but health insurance costs, if you're retiring before Medicare age, health insurance costs a lot of money, way more than you'd expect. Right now, from, and I'm a young man, my family costs us you know, $1,500 a month for health insurance. That's a month, and that's with a young, now I have a family, but with my wife and I and our young family, and we're all young. When you're talking about being 55 to 65 between those years, health insurance costs are significantly higher than I think you'd expect. And if you've been covered under your company plan for all these years and now you're going off the company plan, it really makes sense to take a look at that. You also want to look at Medicare costs because what Medicare plan is correct for you, it can make a huge difference. If you're approaching retirement, make sure you give us a call and Rebecca on our team will set you up with a Medicare plan. And the thing that people don't know about Medicare, it does not cost you anything to work with an advisor to help set you up with the proper plan. But she can get you set into the proper plan that works with your doctors, with your medications, with your 
financial plan on your retirement side to make sure that you're not spending more than you need on something that you don't need. And if you call Medicare directly, you get the same price as you would get working with an agent, but you have an agent that will check in with you every year to make sure you're on the right plan and your doctors haven't changed, your medications haven't changed and things like that. So number five is shift your perspective from saving to spending. You've heard us talk about it. It's one of my favorite analogies you use, but you're going from a saving muscle to a spending muscle, right? And up until retirement, we kind of think of spending what we have saved as it being bad, but in retirement, it's actually okay to spend and not save. It's a hard emotional change though. So give yourself time to ramp up to it and also give yourself time to not walk into what you're doing for spending. Because if you thought you were going to spend $6,000 a month and then six months in, in retirement, you see, you realize, oh, hey, look, I'm actually spending $7,000 a month. That may be your actual retirement spend. Make sure that you reevaluate with your plan, with your advisor, this extra spending that you're thinking of doing. How is that going to affect your long-term plan? Number six, we like to call it reestablish your purpose because you have a purpose during each phase of life, right? You have a, you know, it's working, it's raising your kids, it's getting them off to college. Make sure that you find a purpose in your retirement and whatever that may be, it's personal to you because you want to make sure that you have something that is driving you. You have something that is making you feel that you can power through retirement. Again, 20, 30, maybe more years of retirement, have something that gives you purpose. We found time and time again, that folks that go into retirement with just sort of waffling, then they end up not enjoying it, not having a good time, not enjoying the golden years. You've worked really hard. You've saved a lot. You've gotten to this point. Make sure that you have a purpose for what you want to do. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be a giving purpose. It doesn't mean it has to be a giving back. It's what's personal to you. Maybe your purpose is you want to play golf at all the major resorts around the country. Maybe you want to travel on cruises. Maybe you want to see the world. Whatever that purpose is, it will help you get through your retirement. And the last piece, which should go without saying, but it doesn't because a lot of people don't think about it, but make sure you plan on staying on top of your finances in retirement. So our belief is you want to be on top of what is happening in your retirement plan, what is happening in your spending plan, what is happening overall in your financial life. Because if you're just sticking your head in the sand, something will come up to bite you. And when you work with a team like our fiduciary team, we look at it as a team We're we're on a team together. We're partners in this. The idea being we are bought in to get you to retirement, through retirement, and then through where you want to go with leaving your money to your heirs, if you have that plan. We want to help support you in that, but the only way that we can support you and make sure that it is the best plan is if you are an active participant, meaning that you have buy-in, you know what you're doing, and you know what happens year over year in your finances. It's great to have the peace of mind and not have to worry about it, but at least when you check in with your advisor, we would suggest that you have some knowledge about what's going on. So those are some steps to take if you're thinking about retiring here in 2024. If you don't have a plan, a retirement plan, and you're thinking this year might be a year for retirement, or maybe it's the next couple years, you're in that retirement red zone, and you'd like a complimentary review of what you've done so far, give our office a call, 503-253-3000, or visit www.pricefg.com. Be safe out there. Be kind to each other. We'll talk to you next week. This has been Investing Simplified. Leaving an employer can be stressful and overwhelming, but once the dust settles and you're at a new job or perhaps retired, 
it is important to consider your options for that retirement plan left behind. If this situation applies and you would like to hear more about options available for 401k, 403b, or other retirement account rollovers, please give our office a call at 503-253-3000 to schedule a complimentary consultation with someone on the team to go over your specific and individual situation. We will take the time to get to know you, your goals, and let you know what the best course of action is for you and your family. The opinions voiced in Investing Simplified with Bo Caldwell are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with an attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investors cannot invest directly in indexes. The performance of any index is not indicative of any investment and does not take into account the effects of inflation and the fees and expenses associated with investing. A diversified portfolio does not assure profit or prevent losses in a declining market. Roth IRA conversion is a taxable event. Guests on Investing Simplified are not affiliated with Price Financial Group Wealth Management Incorporated. Investment services offered through Price Financial Group Wealth Management Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor.